I'm Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to walk us through this text this morning. Happy Independence Day weekend. I think that's not, I'm not sure that's how you say that, but hope you're all planning a long day of eating hot dogs and drinking uh, Freedom Beer from Anheuser-Busch. You know, that's kind of the way you do it here. You know, uh, nothing that celebrates freedom like self-harm through indulgence. Um, there we go. America, you know, I got, a, I got a nice pair of American flag swim trunks I'm going to wear out tomorrow, you know, so... I'll get into it. I'm, I'm all about that. Uh, it makes me think this Independence Day weekend, right? What do you want from your government? What do you want from your governmental leaders? Uh, the main thing, one of the ways I know what I want is when I'm disappointed and angry about something, that kind of tells me what you want, right? That's a, one way to find it. Sometimes if I ask you what you want, you don't really know. But if you follow, like, what you don't like, what's happening, that's kind of how you find what you want. You know, it's kind of like uh, when I was talking to my wife about how, what type of parents we want to be, it's easier to start by talking about what type of parents we don't want to be because, you know, like, well, I don't want to do what those people do, you know? Okay, so then you trace the negative back to the positive, right? So what do you want from your government? What do you not want from your government? Some of you probably know that. I know what I don't want. Uh, do you have an answer? Are you ready to, we're going to make a list, you know, what we want, what we don't want. Uh, are you happy with your government? Is it going well, going positive? You know, everyone's pretty good. I can't remember. I remember back in uh, 2015, uh, back when I was younger, because that's how time works. You know, I was uh, meeting with someone, an older gentleman at my old church, and I was telling him, like, uh, can you believe how bad it is, the government, the, the politics? It's so divisive. And, and he, I think, was in his early 70s at the time. And he said, see, this is how I know you're young and foolish. You think that it's bad all of a sudden and right now. This is how it is. You know, I've been, he's like, this is how I know this is your first election you've ever been really paying attention to. That's how I know. Like he's, you know, when, when you've been through, you know, he starts talking about Nixon and I like, I knew about that from my history books, you know, not from firsthand experience. He's like, you have no idea how bad this was. And so he's talking about how bad it was. And so the, I've since come to realize that one of the marks of foolishness or uh, youngness or young foolishness. You know, you can be foolish and have youngness even if you're experienced or aged, right? So youngness or foolishness uh, is believing that things are particularly bad right now. Like, this is new. Can you, can you believe it? Like, whenever I hear someone say, can you believe it? I'm like, how do you not believe it? This is how it is. This is what it is. That's really what this sermon series is somewhat about, is we're about to, this is 1 Samuel 8, it's kind of like we're, we're in like the, the pilot episode of a new series we're going to watch together. It kind of sets the tone. You know, like if you watch the first episode of something, you figure out if it's serious, if it's funny, if it's seriously funny. You need to know like, do I need to be in a good place when I watch this show or can I be having a bad day and watch this show and it's going to, you know, brighten the mood, you know. And, and that's what 1 Samuel 8 is all about. It sets the tone and the tone is foreboding and non-positive, right? That's how this ends, right? In that day, you'll cry out to the Lord and he'll not answer you. (laughs) That's not a good tone, not a good mark. This sermon series, We Want a King, is really built on the phrase that we say here in 1 Samuel 8 when Israel goes, we want a king. And the the subtext of this is not just we want a king, but the, the most like piercing part of this is we want a king like the other nations. And so what we're going to see is that Israel gets exactly what they want, which is a king like 
the other nations. They shouldn't want it, but they want it, and God gives it to them, and they get a king like the other nations. And really, they get three kings like the other nations. So here's where we're going in the sermon series. So this fall, we're going to do Life of Saul for about a month. Then we have Life of David a little longer. Uh, and David, who's like the man after God's heart, supposedly the good one, he's terrible too. Like, and so he gets, he's just like the kings of the other nations. Then we get to Solomon, who like kind of you know, goes above and beyond the others in being uh, particularly terrible. Um, and then, but that takes us all the way to Christmas or Advent. Advent's all about the arrival. And so basically we're going to spend the fall thinking about, feeling about, processing the, the, the problematic kings of Israel and how the one true final king Jesus comes Christmas time and he's the king we've all been wanting this whole time. What do you want from your government? Turns out it's what you actually get from God. <laughs> now I'm not saying governments are all bad and they don't do some good, et cetera, et cetera. But part of like the problem we see in this text is that when people overinvest in earthly rulers, then those earthly rulers get oppressive and then people are surprised by it when in fact they should not be surprised by it. One of the phrases my dad would say growing up is, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> and that's true for all earthly rulers, pastors, teachers, rulers, mothers, fathers, principals, governors, legislators, on and on and on. And so I'm going to walk us through this text and hopefully this sets the tone for the series. Um, and we kind of get like a movement here. So I'm going to spend some time, the background before we get here, I'm assuming most of us don't know what happened in 1 Samuel 1 through 7 or even the, the first chunk of the Bible before we get to 1 Samuel. So the background, we're going to see the failure that creates the situation, uh, the reassurance that God gives amidst the, the situation, a warning that the Lord offers to Israel and to us about investing too much power in politi political leaders. And then lastly, um, this grant that God gives and how that's actually uh, a bad thing. And we should be worried about God giving us what we want. All right, let me pray and then we'll walk us through this text. Lord, thank you for Samuel, for this book, for the way it confronts us and guides us and leads us. I do ask that we as Redemption Gateway would have... Uh, sobriety in the way that we celebrate and are grateful for uh, various political things and we'd also be uh, appropriately nervous about other things. God, uh, help us see the, that human failure is not something to uh, be surprised by, um, but it is something that you've promised that will continue to happen. And I pray that we, that wouldn't just turn us cynical, but it turns us prayerful and we would uh, have our hope rightly placed. In your name we pray, amen. So a little bit of background, I'm gonna go all the way back here. So in the beginning, God creates heavens and the earth and it was very good. Humanity was called to subdue and have dominion, build society. And so society building is part of human's task, the human task. But then, society, then humans start sinning and they start suffering. And now people are being reactive and selfish. Uh, and so they start building a society based on this foundation of reactivity and suffering, sinning and suffering, sinning and suffering. And they build and they build and they build. They're still made in the image of God. And so they're building society and there's aspects of good, aspects of bad, but it just kind of generally doesn't go flawlessly. That's an understatement. Generally, it tends to go bad. And so as human, humanity spreads over the face of the earth, there's all this disorder, all this uh, uh, rivalry and contention and, and haughtiness and, and, and infighting and, and war. And so God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to choose a particular people, bring them to myself, and I'm going to bless them so they'll be a blessing to the nations. And the primary way they're going to be blessed to the nations is by being a light to the nations. That they're going to be this little preview or this people. And the nations should be able to look in and see Israel and go, that's what life would be like if we followed the good and gracious lordship of God. 
And we could be like that if we would follow the Lord. And so that's what he wants to do. He creates this nation, Israel, and he blesses them to be a blessing, and he creates this government over them. Kind of by way of analogy, America has a government. You know, it's, uh, you know, there's the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. But the way that God sets it up in Israel, so is the executive branch is God, the legislative branch is God, and the judicial branch are these things that he calls judges. There's what's supposed to be the administrators of justice. And they're supposed to kind of like tell Israel when they're being unfaithful, um, apply the law to certain situations. And so there's not really a king besides the Lord. There's not really lawmakers besides the Lord. There's just judges that are appointed to apply the law and administrate it, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the judges we see is beginning for Samuel is a guy named Eli. Eli's a judge. He's a law applier. Eli does good, but then his sons go bad, right? We, we read in this text earlier that Samuel's sons do not do a good job. They turn aside for gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Eli's sons did that and even worse. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see that Eli's sons were doing that while also sexually exploiting people at the temple, which even back then they knew was frowned upon slash very evil. And so the people are mad and God corrects it and God judges them and God actually brings judgment on Eli's house because they're in faithfulness and there's all these judges. But then Samuel rises up, the, you know, the, the hero of this story, the, or at least like the positive figure in this story. And Samuel's a good judge. He's rightly administering justice. And we see in 1 Samuel uh, 7 that things are going really well. Samuel's doing his job. They actually just had constructed this massive monument celebrating the work of the Lord in the midst of their people. That the structure that God had established was functioning well. See, this is one of the key questions we have in society. Is the structure the problem or are the people within the structure the problem? And sometimes the structure is the problem, and sometimes it's just the people within the structure that are the problem. Here in 1 Samuel, the structure has sinners in it, like Eli's sons. God overthrows them, maintains the structure. And when, so here's a, here's a good rule of thumb. If God created the structure, the structure is not the problem. The people within the structure are the problem. And in this situation, the structure is not the problem. The people within the structure are the problem. And so we get a new leader in there named Samuel. He's faithful, he's doing well. Things are going awesome. They construct this thing called the Ebenezer, a monument to how the Lord has been helping us. The Lord has been fighting our battles. He's been controlling the Philistine armies. So he's not just lording over um, Israel, but he's actually like sovereignly ruling over the nations. Things are going well. They make a monument. Everything's happy. First Samuel seven fifteen. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. See, in, in Jewish thinking, the older you got, the better you got, which is kind of the opposite of like our like, youth-obsessed, foolish culture in America. Like the, the older you get, the more experience and wisdom you have. And so he's getting older and getting better and better as a judge. Um, and he's going around in this preaching circuit year after year to all these places. And basically everything's awesome. So First Samuel 7 ends. Things are going well. Up and to the right. We got rid of the bad leaders. We have a good leader then. Then we get to First Samuel 8 and there's failure. When Samuel became old, he made his sons over, judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, his second Abijah, and they were judges. Yet his sons did not wake, walk in his ways, and they turned aside after gain. This is, this is the failure situation here. But what also happens in verse 4 is like all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said, Hey, your sons, you're old, your sons are not walking your ways, meaning like you're on your way out. We've got to figure this thing out before you pass. Your sons aren't going to be the thing because they're terrible. Um, appoint for us a king to judge us. And if the, scene, if the sentence ended right there, it would not be super bad. Right, in Deuteronomy 17, God makes provision for one day they might want a king. And he says, here's the rules for the king. 
But the failure here is not that Israel wants a king. They, hey, wanting leadership is not bad. Leadership's not bad. Right? Leadership's not a worldly thing. It's the next phrase that gets us. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is what would have pierced Samuel's heart. Ah, Like the nations. It's revealing that the elders of Israel are missing the entire point of Israel. The entire point of Israel was to be unlike the nations, to be a light to the nations, to be distinct from the nations, that they'd be ruled by God and judged by judges so they could be a light, a blessing to the others. And they're saying, ah, we've been doing that a while. This kind of, it's not doing us for anymore. We want reform for the sake of reform. We want to be like the nations. So that pierces Samuel and it hurts. And so the failure here is twofold. It's the failure of leaders in their sinfulness and it's the failure of the people wanting to be sinful like the nations, wanting structures like the nations. So there's layers to what's going on here. And if we're honest, I think that the vast majority of problems in our church and churches like ours come down to those same two things. It's when people in power are sinful and when people not in power are sinful. <laughs> that this kind of like, in the, so understand this, that the ways that we are all tempted to sin is different than maybe the ways that people and Christians in other parts of the world are tempted to sin, right? Because we tempted to sin like our neighbors, right? Like, there's a Gilbert people tend to sin like Gilbert people, right? New York people tend to sin like New York people. Uh, Nigerian people tend to sin like Nigerian. Like there's, the culture has power. It shapes our affections and our desires and we want to be included. Like this is the FOMO, the fear of missing out, the fear of being left out. We desire to want what other people want. So most human like sinfulness is, is contagious. Just like desire is contagious. It's like Fashion. It's in and it's out. It's hot and it's cold. It's generational. Right? Each generation tends to have certain sins that set it apart from other generations. Right? Older generations judge younger generations for their sin. Younger generations judge older generations for their sin. And we all think that everyone's sin is worse than ours. Israel goes, we want to be like the nations. Failure of leaders, the desire to be like the nations, and Israel is going bad. This begins to set the tone. Samuel, his heart hurts. It says, this thing displeased Samuel and they said, give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is a great way to process disappointment, the flinch to pray. In verse seven, this is the reassurance. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the Lord and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's not you, it's me. Anyone ever got that speech before? I'm getting broken up with? It's not you, it's not me, I'm just not ready, you know, or whatever it is. You know, I'm just going through a lot right now, it's not you, it's me. Like that's, that's how we usually hear that, is some, like someone lying, right? <laughs> like really it's, really it's you, I don't want to be around you. It, it's me in that I don't want to be around you, but it's not you, it's me, you know. So that's kind of the breakup speech. Right, this, is, this is not how the Lord's using that. He's saying, Samuel, you're tempted to take this very personally, and I want you to know Take it less personally. Is the Lord's kind of looking at Samuel and saying, 
what all of us who are in different positions of spiritual authority need to hear is you don't matter that much. Now, I think it matters. I'm up here trying to do spiritual leadership right now. <laughs> if I thought it didn't matter at all, I wouldn't be doing it, I'd hopefully, you know. Uh, but, but the amount, like whether you're a, a mother, a father, a grandparent, a pastor, a small group leader, a mentor, like there's this reality that you matter, but not that much. God's telling Samuel, the judge over Israel, this is really about me. This is not really about you. Now, did Samuel make a mistake in appointing his son as judges? Yeah, he should not have done that. Did he make a mistake not getting his sons out of there faster? Yeah. Did the leaders really fail? Yeah. So does Samuel possibly have some of the blame? Yeah. But here's what the Lord is saying. Look, Samuel, this was never about you. Stop taking, making it about you. This is about me. That if I go off the rails as a pastor, if Luke goes off the rails as a pastor, that does not give anyone here license to walk away from the Lord. It's never been about me. It's never been about Luke. It's never been about your small group leaders. It's never been about your high school pastor. It's never been about the elders. It's like you have a relationship with the Lord that you're accountable to the Lord with. If you walk away from the Lord, it's not me. It's, your problem's not with me. Your problem's with God. And I know that some of you, like you had bad fathers or bad mothers, and it's hard for you because you're trying to say, like, the reason I'm distancing myself from God is because of the failure of spiritual leadership. And because of them, I don't trust him. And I want to say, that's an okay place to be in. That's not an okay place to stay in. Prophet and poet Kendrick Lamar said it this way. I got daddy issues. That's on me. <laughs> right. I know a lot of you have experienced terrible spiritual leadership. That's not your fault. But if you don't do the work required to overcome that and meaningfully connect with God, then it becomes your fault. All right? Like we're, we're capable humans who can do the work to work through our trust issues to develop meaningful trust to the Lord. We can do that. Right? Having daddy issues... Having a bad dad is not your fault, but holding on to your daddy issues and not working through it and healing becomes your fault if you don't do anything about it. I hope that some of you hear this assurance, like, and you're in the position of Samuel. You have had kids that walked away from the church. Young ones, old ones. You've had disciples walk away from Jesus. You've had people you've given your life to wander off. This is the Lord saying to you, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. Sometimes you've done everything right and you could have done nothing better and they still walk away. It's not about you, it's about God. Sometimes you could have done things better. Could Samuel have done better? Yes. Should Samuel have done better? Sure. But it's still ultimately on God in his relationship with that person, with those people. even the role of parents in the, spiritual formation, in the spiritual formation of their kids. Like, understand this. It's ultimately not about you. <laughs> and they were always going to do what they wanted. We have way less control, and probably we have, by way less control, I mean none, and we have probably even less influence than we want to pretend we have. 
I hope that that's assuring, not just makes you feel cynical and nihilistic, so what's the point? <laughs> right, God appoints us, we do the best we can, but ultimately he says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. I'm very tempted to take it personally when someone walks away from the Lord. If I had preached better, if I had been more responsive on, my, on the text messaging, if I had made myself more available for counseling, if I had shown up to that whatever thing, if I had, if I had, if I had, if I had. And I, I hear this text and at least hear the Lord calling me saying like, it's never been about you. <laughs> it's not you, it's me. Don't take it personally because taking it personally reveals that you think it's about you. So it stings a little bit. Uh, next thing we get is this warning. He says, look, give them a king, but tell them what it's going to do to you. Tell them what this king is going to do. And I'll re- reread some of this stuff with a little more emphasis. So 1 Samuel 8, verse 11. Okay, they want a king, you know, give them to him, but tell them what it's going to be like. Uh, there's, a, there's a word here that's repeated emphatically. Um, this is verse 11. He will take your sons and, and appoint them to his chariots. He's going to send your boys out to battle. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. 16, he will take your male and female servants. 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks. He's gonna take your money. He's gonna take your people. He's gonna take your stuff. He's gonna use it for selfish gain. Take, 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 take. You want a strong, centralized government that's going to fight your battles, that's going to go before you, and that's going to solve your problems? Fine, but they're going to take, 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 take to make it happen. Walter Brueggemann, who's my favorite Old Testament scholar, not just because his name sounds like a famous Old Testament scholar, Brueggemann, I mean, how could you have that name and not be a good Old Testament scholar? But he says, what Israel is asking for and what Samuel's warning them about is you are asking for the undoing of the exodus. You previously existed under a regime, under a king named Pharaoh, who fought your battles for you, who was responsible for your well-being, who oversaw every aspect of your lives, who took from you and took from you and took from you, and I just freed you from that like 150 pages ago, and here you are wanting back in that position. What's the deal here? Well, they're disappointed. They're getting fatigued. You know, I have a yard. I used to have fake grass. Now I'm a new house. I have real grass. And when I first moved in, uh, I hired a yard guy for three months while we were getting settled. Then I am doing it myself. And I tell you what, when someone else was responsible for that yard, it was great because it's like, hey, problems. And then he would fix them. And if it wasn't good, I'm like, I didn't take it. It wasn't on me. It was like, hey, the yard's not good. Now the yard's bad and it looks bad. And whose fault? Like, it's my problem. (laughs) There's no one to fight my battles for me. See, the reason we want to outsource our responsibility is not just for convenience, but it's shame management. I can't be left being responsible for my life because I don't trust myself to build a good life. I can't be left responsible for my faithfulness. We want to blame our pastors for our spiritual failures. We want to blame our government for our financial failures. We want to blame anybody but ourselves for our problems. Someone else needs to fight my battles. Someone else needs to be responsible for my being. Someone else wants to do this. That it's not even about like time, convenience, and energy. Like I'm tempted to hire another yard guy because I'm sick of my yard looking bad and I can't handle the, the feeling of failure. <laughs> like very seriously, like he's gonna take, he's gonna take, he's gonna take, he's gonna take. This is what it's gonna take. 
I'm sure when I asked you earlier, what do you want from your government? You all said, I'd like him to take and take, 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 take. It's decidedly negative. There's a sober warning here. And here's the thing is, the first readers of First and Second Samuel, they know how this ends because they, they're writing this. This is like later, right? They know it ends bad. They know it ends in exile. They know that these kings do a bad job. And they're probably reading this, the first readers of this text going, and they'll take and take and take. They're like, yep, 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 yep. All that happened. Check, 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 check. Take your money, take your time, take your people for their own deal. You still want that? Is that what you want? Do warnings work? Do warnings work on you? And you're driving somewhere, it says, you know, slow down 55 windy roads. Do you slow down to 55? Don't touch that stove is hot. Find out myself. How many of you are, I got to touch the stove type people, you know? How many of you are rule followers people, you know? Okay, well. I feel like this is like one of the hard things like in parenting and discipleship and in life is which lessons need to be learned on their own versus which lessons can I give someone? Right, like I would like to teach my son don't touch the stove, it's hot. But I understand if he doesn't listen, he will learn the stove is hot. Like there's two ways to learn the stove is hot. Right, by believing wisdom or by finding out for yourself. This is one of like the main marks of wisdom or maturity is can you learn lessons from other people's lives? Or do you have to learn the lesson the hard way yourself? The sooner you become the type of person that can learn lessons from other people's lives, either their successes or their failures, the more quickly and prematurely you might become a wise person. This is one of the reasons this text is in the Bible, is learn this lesson. We can learn from it. Do warnings work on you? Because there's warnings throughout the whole, whole Bible. Hey, if you do this, you, it's not going to go well for you. And, and the scary part about this is this warning and the lesson being taught here takes multiple generations for the people to learn. Have you ever thought about your foolishness or sinfulness? Might not like, the lesson might not come full circle until like your great-grandkids. That'd be kind of disappointing. Like if I do something foolish on Friday and experience suffering, I want to know by Saturday afternoon what the point was. You know, otherwise I'm like, what the heck, Lord? <laughs> uh, but we need to be a type of people who hear warnings and believe them and take them and not kind of do this kind of stubborn. See, like I think we're all still like two and a half at heart. You know, like my, you know, like AJ, don't stick that in there. And he's like, well, why? And I want to be, be like, Never mind, just do it, you know. You'll find out why, you know. But, but you know, I don't need this sass, you know. Just get electrocuted, then you'll learn to listen, you know. So, well, why? Okay, well, what? Well, because well, it'll hurt. Well, why? I don't know, because pain receptors in your fingers go to your brain. Well, why? I don't know, because God made us connected to the world, you know. And so, like, he's two and a half, and he's like, whatever, I'm just going to do it, you know. And so, we're all just two and a half in terms of, like, our internal disposition. We just have better language and stuff, I learned, you know, I did it my way. I looked up the other week, most popular funeral songs. Number one, I did it my way. Just got to say, if that song's playing at your funeral, 
It's probably not a good sign. I hope that we can be people that receive warnings and not stupid, right? So and here's the last piece, the grant. This is the part that's been haunting me the most, the most. The people of Israel refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like the nations and their king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. Literally two chapters ago, the Lord was judging them and going out before them and fighting their battles. Like, we don't want the Lord to do that anymore. We want to be like the nations. And when Samuel heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Give them what they want. Think about what you want. This is an important question. In John 1, when Jesus first appears on the scene, he asked the people, what do you want? our desires. And here's the next question. What if the Lord gave you everything that you wanted? Not what you say you wanted, what you really wanted. What would your life be like? How would it go? Because I know a lot of us in this room, we struggle, we're frustrated with God because he won't give us what we want. In this text and the rest of this book of 1 Samuel, I think is mostly a warning saying that if God gives you everything you want, that is his judgment on you. I listened to a podcast this week. You know, I quoted Kendrick Lamar earlier and I'm going to quote Mike Tyson now. So it's going really well. Um, on the, he's on the Pivot podcast, you know, which is a pretty good podcast, I guess, if you want to know the way worldly people think about things. <laughs> so Mike Tyson, you know, and he made $500 million in his career and then went bankrupt. And the guys on the podcast are like, how does that happen? How do you even spend $500 million? And he's talking about giving out Bentleys like, you know, on Halloween and just t- tossing them out and gambling and this and that and this and that. And then, you know, then he's, you know, addicted to drugs and then he's in prison and yada yada it goes bad and eventually he's broke aka only had two million dollars left you know and I'm like well if only I was broke you know and so (laughs) but from 500 like he lost 498 million and so they're asking him and I don't know anything about Mike Tyson's spirituality or lack thereof whatever I didn't research it don't email me about it but he but here's what he says is he is he says when God is going to destroy a person he gives them everything they want. And you, you're hearing this guy talk, and I'm like, yeah, you're pretty destroyed. He can barely talk. You know, it's like too many punches to the skull, too much drugs in the nose, you know. And he's, when God's going to destroy, he gives them everything they want. And this is what happens in First Samuel. He says, give them what they want. Like, think about this. That the Lord giving you what you want might be him turning you over to judgment. That's Romans 1. He gives them over to the desires of their hearts for us as parents and as leaders and disciples, You want this? I warned you about it, but here you go. And the consequences end up in exile. They are not in a good place at the end of the story. And God gave it to them because they wanted it. 
Like I want all of us in this room to know that if God gave you everything you want, that would be actually terrible. Because you don't want the right things. I don't want the right things. Our desires are disordered. We trust ourselves too much. We think we're holier than we are. So one of the things we need to be praying is, God, don't give me what I want. Help me want the right things and then give me what I want. Because <laughs> none of us want the right things in every situation in our lives. None of us do. And as I was praying about this, I was thinking about how like, it's God's judgment to give the people what they want. But here you have in, in Jesus praying, but the night he's betrayed, saying, Lord, take this cup from me. And the father tells him, no. And Jesus suffers and dies in our place. The sinless one it was actually Christ being told no that ultimately led him to the cross. This is the only way. That God tells us yes all the time. He's like, you know what? Here you go. And we do it. And we sin. And we harm others. And we harm ourselves. And Jesus dies because the fathers know in place of all the times that he said yes to us. What grace, what patience, what long-suffering, what endurance. And so I want us, as Redemption Gateway, to be mindful of this fact, that God telling you yes might be a very bad thing. We don't always understand this. Like I was at uh, coffee with Bob Ferris, who goes here, and I was talking to him about this reality and just this whole like God giving people what they want and how it's actually kind of newly terrifying to me that God might give me what I want because I don't know I'm, I'm limited right and I was ex- trying to explain to him like like my son you know and my son you know he's two and a half and he wants to eat fruit snacks all day long and I'm like no that's not good for you because muscles come from meat not fruit snacks you know and I'm trying to reason with him and explain to him these things and and you know when I, now he takes a bite of meat he goes look at my muscles and I'm like yes you know and then and so trying to explain to him like you want the wrong things and here's the better stuff for you and 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 there's a distance between my comprehension and his and, and Bob. And Bob's a sharp guy. He goes like, ah, that's too small of a gap. Your son to you. And as we're sitting at coffee, an ant crawled by. He said, the gap between that ant's mind and my mind is smaller than the gap between my mind and God's mind. Like, I remember the first, I remember in fifth grade, I was, you know, the smartest fifth grader in my fifth grade class. So I was, like, on top of the world, you know. And they brought in this chess master grand champion, and he beat all of us at once playing a game of chess. And I remember being like, how could someone be this much smarter than me? (laughs) He beat 30 of us at once, you know, like. He beat me, like, seven moves. Like, the gap, like, the gap between my mind and God's mind, like we can't even begin to comprehend that gap. And so what he says yes to, what he says no to, how he's writing the story in the midst of these failed kings leading up to the ultimate coming of Jesus, like we just, we can't wrap our minds around it. We have this like true revelation of God, but it's certainly not like a full revelation of God would be incomprehensible to us. He is beyond us. And so trusting him of when he says yes, when he says no, ultimately knowing that he takes responsibility for us and dying on the cross and raising from the dead and empowering us to go and live a life, these are all part of the warnings of 1 Samuel. 
that we all have positions of leadership, either formal or informal, high and low, left and right, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to see the failure of king after king, of leader after leader, and this is all designed to loosen our grip on our hopeful dependence on earthly leaders and instead tighten our grip on the Lord. Because the cycle that America's in, right? This is, this is the cycle of nations, the cycle of Israel, right? Is, you know, there's you know, the honeymoon phase, the consolidation phase, and the dissolving phase. <laughs> right? The, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, America, right? I love the United States, but it has a short shelf life compared to the kingdom of God. <laughs> And that's where we got to live. We want to love the United States and love our neighbors and do our best to help them flourish. But we ultimately got to understand that the political entity known as the United States of America is perishing. Just like Samuel, just like Saul, just like David, just like Solomon, just like the nation state Israel. But the kingdom of God endures forever. And we need to grab onto that and cling to that and hope to that. Let me pray. God, I pray that we'd be assured here of your sovereignty, of your grace, that you are the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, that the realm that you oversee, the kingdom of God, supersedes all nations. God, I do ask that even this week as we celebrate Independence Day, that we'd be sober-minded, being legitimately grateful for all that there is to be grateful for, the blessings we receive, but we'd also be mindful of how temporary these blessings are compared to the eternal ones we're going to inherit in the new heavens and new earth. It's in your son's name, Father, we pray. Amen.